0: Hi, this is Sandy Rios, and you're listening to Sandy Rios 24-7. Well, today is part two, our second visit, or our second day with Dr. Tom Phillips. We are talking about the great awakenings that happened in this country, the times when God intervened miraculously. And interestingly enough, the first one was right before the Revolutionary War. Part one with Tom was about that, and you'll want to listen to that. Today is part two, and we'll talk about how God moved mightily in the United States of America, just before the Civil War, uh, we will talk a little bit about uh, just the effect that it had on slavery. And I, I think I've mentioned before, but I'll mention again, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote a book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which comes under tremendous criticism. But I have to say that if you read the history texts, it was this book spread like wildfire. It spread among uh, northern and southern whites, who realized, maybe because of the artful way that Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote that book, the plight of the black slave? It awakened something in Americans, and many would say, that was the spark that led to the fight back on slavery. Uh, but we're going to talk to Dr. Phillips about that. Before we do that, though, uh, let me just tell you that we have, there are ways of communicating with us. If you'd like to leave a message or if you have a comment about some of the shows or anything that we say or do or you have a request, you can call us at 662 821 2040. That's 662 821 2040. Or you can, you know, send an email at sandy at afr. Dot net. Our website is sandyrios.com. Are you tired of hearing Sandy Rios? Sandy R- well, that's, you know, the name. That's the name. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Sandy Rios 24-7. Twitter, it's at Sandy Rios Tweet. Instagram, Sandy Rios 24-7. Getter, Truth Social, YouTube, Rumble. And you can listen to this on any podcast outlet, your favorite one, whether it's Apple or Spotify or Amazon. Or for many of you, it's our home base, AFR.net. All right, one more thing. We have a great sponsor. I'm so proud that Preborn has chosen to sponsor this show. Show, And one of the things that Preborn does that I've talked about a great deal is provide ultrasounds for women who are considering aborting their babies. You know, while our administration considers declaring a public health emergency on abortion, the battle is far from over. Overturning Roe v. Wade was huge, but let's not forget this. Day after day, young women, scared young women, who don't think they have any options, are choosing abortion. Pre-born network clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies. The majority of the women who come to their clinics are being pressured to abort. Preborn seeks those women out before they make that choice and introduces them to the life growing inside of them through a free ultrasound. And we, you and I, are the fuel that allows Preborn to offer these young women ultrasounds for free. Once a mom, a potential mom, a budding mom hears the heartbeat and sees that precious life, the majority of the time she does choose life. Just $28, uh, that's what an ultrasound costs. $28 $28 is all it costs. $140 provides five ultrasounds. How about we save some lives today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that, because abortion doesn't stop. So we can't stop. Just go to preborn.com Sandy. That's preborn.com Sandy and make your most generous uh, donation. All right. So sit back. Really, you're in for a treat. This is so enriching. I know you're going to love it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy part two with Dr. Tom Phillips. From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational.
1: And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I
0: think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. Isn't it just like right. God, Tom, to, to, to let a little nation, fledgling, uh, who have turned their lives over to the Almighty God to defeat you know, the greatest power in the world, which was Britain at the time, isn't it just like God?
1: Well, we know that the miracles that occurred in the Revolution were phenomenal. Whenever Washington's troops could have been destroyed, this cloud or mist came over them as they went across the Delaware and uh, then they were able to begin to defeat the foes. And after the Revolution, because the Church of the United States was primarily, at that time, after 1776, and the loss by England, the Anglican Church, which was here in this country, had lost faith. And so that's how the Second Great Awakening began, because the First Great Awakening was about indifference. The Second Great Awakening was about infidelity, loss of faith, because with the church siding with England, they were no longer received, the Anglican Church, by the colonies. And the Baptists were small, the Methodists were small, <clears throat> the Presbyterians were small. And at that time, America was in a slump, a moral slump. Literally, drunkenness was rampant. Out of a population of five million, three hundred thousand were confirmed drunks, and about 15,000 were buried every year from alcohol. Women were afraid to go out on the street. It was so bad. Bank robberies were a daily occurrence. So you ask, well, what were the churches doing? Remember, they're small. The largest denomination at the time were the Methodists, and they were losing members. The Baptists, the second largest, were called going through their most wintry season. The Presbyterians met in congregation and said that they hadn't taken a person into the assembly, and so long that an ungodliness was taken over the country. Even Reverend Samuel Shepard of Lenox, Massachusetts, said in 16 years he had not taken one single young person into his church. The Episcopal Bishop of New York, Bishop Samuel Provost, quit functioning. He had confirmed no one for so long. He took up other employment. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, who was a Christian, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia and said, the Church is too far gone ever to be redeemed. Voltaire, not a Christian, said Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years' time. And Thomas Paine, not a Christian, said that he would preach that cheerfully all over America. Kenneth Scott letterette. The great Christian historian said it seemed as if Christianity was about to be ushered out of the affairs of men. And at that time, John Bacchus, 1794, a great Baptist preacher in Massachusetts, said we must call the nation to prayer, not unlike what's happened at Asbury. And in 1794, he sent out what was called a circular letter, I mean one letter, and he sent it to to a pastor and said, send it to pastors you know, send it to pastors you know it to pastors, you know, and that circular letter was faithfully distributed throughout America, and in it, it called the church to prayer. And he said, let's start in the first quarter of every year with prayer and pray that God would touch this. Others were taking it for every month, not first quarter, and Saturdays were given to prayer. And out of the prayer movement that we're seeing now in America through the young people, the nation began to change. It was bad in the colleges, too. For example, Harvard could not find one believer in the whole student body. Princeton could only find two. Williams College, they had a mock communion. At Princeton, they burned down Nassau Hall. They forced the resignation of the president at Harvard. Christians were so few on campus. But not long after many women started praying, God began to move, and revival came, and it swept the eastern seaboard. It went out into Kentucky, which was the frontier, and um, the worst part of the population of America would rob a bank in New Jersey or New England somewhere or kill someone across the Alleghenies, go to Kentucky, and there they had a group called Rogues Harbor. It was a little town. There had not been a court of law in five years the farmers around them formed a militia and attacked these criminals, and the farmers lost. They lost. So in the latter part of the 1700s, 1799, 1801, God began to move, and these pastors began to call people together on the weekends in the frontier, horse and buggy, to come together and pray and have communion and preach. The, the hallmark of that was the Cane Ridge. There was several years of this— and the last one was at Cane Ridge, where the U.S. military said between 15 and 25,000 people came to what was called a brush arbor weekend because the woodsmen would go in and cut the trees down, lay the logs for benches, put up a little stand. The preachers would come together Friday morning. One guy would preach from the stand, and when the guy out in the distance could hear no more, Get back in a little bit. He would re-preach the sermon. They did that. That was their megaphone. That was their sound system. So when the people arrived in horse and buggies, and the military said fifteen to 25,000, that's huge in the wilderness of America. Well, the rogues heard about this preaching. They came with pistols in hand and with their drinking bottles and sat at the back, drinking their whiskey, shooting their pistols in the air. But as God's word began to move in the hearts of these men, They were so convicted that they, too, began to surrender their lives to God. When lawlessness reigned, which is happening in America, God's prayer and power overwhelmed through the Holy Spirit, his word, and God's kids sharing his love. It was so powerful that Washington College president, traveling back from the western part of America a year and a half later, wrote in his diary when he came through what had been Rogue's Harbor— this is the most moral place in which I have ever been.
0: And I think of uh, Alexis, Alexis de Tocqueville, the French historian. And I think this was—I'm well, sorry—I'm just blanking out about which, de- which you know, which generation he wrote in. But he observed he wanted to know what was the strength of America. And he best he said, yep. "When I visited America's churches, I finally understood the strength and the power of the, of America." Uh, So uh, that's from a French historian, you know, right after their revolution. So I just think that's a remarkable telling, and of course that led us into, uh, led that led us into that preceded the Civil War, where I always think of Harriet Beecher Stowe, Tom, writing that, uh, "Mine eyes have seen the glory, the words and one phrase of that when she visited the camps and she said, I have seen." his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamp. She talked about the soldiers reading God's word, uh, you know, right. by, the, by the lights. And uh, that makes me think of that, that uh, re- revival or that awakening. I don't know if there's a connection. Do you think there's a connection there?
1: Oh, there's totally a connection. Alexander Tocqueville came from a destroyed country through a revolution. We had come through a revolution and had not been destroyed. And he came to America and he said, I fought for America's greatness in its harbors its educational system its political system and its industry but i found it not until i went into its churches and heard its pulpits aflame with truth he said america is good because, great because america is good if america ever ceases to be good it will cease to be great yes and oh yes, thank you when uh, what happened in 1857 This is really important, really important for us to take. Prior to the Civil War, we were so divided, like we are now. Everybody was full of themselves, plenty of money, great clothes, education, no problems, no worries. At that time, there was a young layman, an evangelist, about 40 years old, who was given the charge of a church, the old North Dutch church on Fulton Street. In New York City there were no people around that church because it had become industry it had some money and it hired this young man and said go in there and do what you can well he's not surrounded by people in homes or apartments he's surrounded by industry so he prayed and prayed and prayed and finally he made up his mind that he would go to a printer and he would print handbills to distribute to the industries around to come to a prayer meeting on a Wednesday In 1757, and he said, We're going to meet for an hour. Everybody took an hour for lunch. They brought their lunch with them. Everything shut down. So he went up in the third floor of the consistory building behind the old North Dutch church. Now, this is all simultaneous, and he started prayer. The first day, there were six people. The second Wednesday, there were 13. The next Wednesday, there were a little over 40. And it grew so quickly as people prayed for their unsaved friends and prayed for America and prayed for God to move, that within six months, Horace Greeley, who was the great and famous editor of the New York newspaper, sent a reporter around in a horse and buggy. And in one hour, he would get to 12 meetings, and he counted 6,100 men praying for each other for their unsaved friends. For this nation, within two years, those prayer meetings in church sanctuaries, secular halls, all the way to the Mississippi River changed the nation. We had 30 million people, and you can see the actual flow of every meeting. Charles Kenney said no evangelist or pastor led one of these meetings. It was just laymen, and they would pray for their friends. And in two years, 30 million population, one million made commitments. The so churches grew dramatically. And out of that came a renewed nation, incredibly renewed nation. And if that happened today, there would be 13 to 14 million people in two years making a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Those kind of results can change a nation. They can put a toddling nation solidly on foot. It can establish sobriety in a nation. The most moral place was said after the Second Great Awakening. And here in the Confederate troops' camps, 150,000 came to Christ in a broken nation during the Civil War. D.L. Moody would go into the fires at night around the Union camps and preach and lead men to Christ. Would we have been a nation without what God did before the Civil War? Will we be a nation later because of what God is doing now? Yes, because he's the victor.
0: Let me just uh, say, we're talking to Tom Phillips, by the way, and he is the author of several books on revival. The latest is Ignite Your Passion for Jesus. Uh, and the one that uh, you have recommended is if people are interested in reading more about these great awakenings, boy, I wish we could talk forever. Honestly, Tom, I would lo- I would love. I just think my I just want more, more, more. But it's America. The book that Tom is recommending, uh, we don't even know the author. It's America's Great Revivals. It's published by Bethany House. It's America's Great Revivals, and just a couple of things I want to correct myself. It's Julia Ward Howe who wrote the lyrics to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's Harriet Beecher Stowe who penned Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is all about, people hear Uncle Tom as such a derogatory term, but Uncle Tom was a strong Christian slave. Incredible story of his faith, and uh, people who hate the way he behaved and uh, yielded to his cruel master uh, used that against uh, all kinds of people, but he, he was. A, it's a really powerful uh, story about Uncle Tom, who was a great man of faith. Uh, and that's written by during that same time that we're describing right here. Uh, Tom, we are... Oh, let's talk about, uh, for the for the next few minutes, and then I have to say goodbye to you, let's talk about how this relates. You've touched on it. Uh, Asbury is, of course, the latest center, and you've mentioned that this revival or renewal, this awakening has taken place now. It's spreading to 20 other universities and college campuses. Um, it isn't... It can't be an accident, Tom, that at a time when our college campuses are the epicenter of really the most wicked, and it's been going on for decades because I've been covering it for decades, but the most wicked, godless uh, atmospheres, it, it can't be an accident that God should pour his spirit out in those places, do
1: you think? No, it's no accident. Asbury has had about 20 different moves of God since its inception. A couple hundred years ago, in um, 1970, a young uh, girl got up and confessed a sin or two. as happened with this young man a few weeks ago, <clears throat> and that went on for nine weeks. The students in 1970 went all over America, and they came to my seminary in uh, in 1970. And we had a movement of God after they told, and as they shared in God, God began to move. So I had a tremendous obligation to that school. Five months ago, I spoke in chapel and gave all the students the book, Ignite Your Passion for God, uh, your, your Guide to Personal Revival. And then two years ago, when they had their 50th anniversary, I sent the little book, Revival Now, 1200, just to pay back some of what they had done for us. And uh, we have two grandchildren right now at Asbury both in pre had a girl from Colorado, a boy from Florida. And this is a move of God. It's just vital religion. It's God taking back his kingdom and he's using the young people as he proclaimed. So the first great awakening overcame indifference. The second great awakening overcame infidelity. The great prayer movement in 1857, 1858 was vital in the destruction of slavery in our country. And then the great Jesus movement that happened in the late 60s and 70s in California and spread overcame emptiness. Today, we're just hungry to know God. And last weekend, in a city of 6,000 called Wilmore, Kentucky, 20,000 people were trying to get in to Hughes Auditorium, the Seminary Auditorium, another auditorium. On the grass on the the street, they had a screen out in the grass in front of Hughes Auditorium. Two Methodist churches opened up their sanctuaries. This is God moving. It's not something man can organize. We know how at BGEA to organize evangelistic campaigns. God always blesses when we proclaim his son's name and the truth about his resurrection and for salvation. But periodically, periodically, God moves in unusual ways On his own, like a wave rolling in from some unseen continent, there's something incalculable. This tide rolls in from somewhere that we don't even understand and moves with gathering momentum, which no one can resist, and it awakens the churches. When the churches are thus awakened, the reformation and salvation of sinners will follow. So that's what we're seeing right now, result, salvation of all possible, justice, compassion, all possible when people's lives are changed. That's what God is doing.
0: Yeah. Well, wow. this is what I pray. I just pray. Could this possibly be a third great awakening? And, you know, not, I want to clarify, not for the preserving of our comfort. I think that's a mistake that American Christians have made. They pray for change and political favor and all of that because they don't want to be, they don't want to lose. I'll just say it, I'll just say it, the comforts that we have, and this might not be the result. This uh, awakening might be preparing Mm -hmm. us for something really that we would not otherwise ever choose to go through, Uh, but I do believe God is preparing. And I also want to say this, Tom, and and correct me if you disagree, but it's been my experience that God does not do these great works... um, it's like the scripture that says the spirit comes and goes where list us. I think of the King James, but comes and goes. You don't see right. it. You can't. You feel it, but you feel the wind, but you don't know where it came from and where it goes. And that's the way right. God's spirits move. He doesn't sit there and then establish you an know, organization uh, uh, that is a perpetual revival. Like this thing at Asbury is not going to go on and on. God comes, his spirit comes, and then it moves. It doesn't mean he doesn't right. leave part of himself, but God's work... Powerful work like that is not meant to be in perpetuity in that place. Would you agree?
1: I would, and I need to mention something. In the 1857 revival of prayer prior to the Civil War and the destruction of slavery, and I mentioned everybody was relaxed and comfortable, what drove them to their knees was one piece was financial. A bank collapse started. We call that a depression. There was no Medicare, Medicaid, no backup at all. And all of a sudden, this very arrogant nation called America, who had thought they had done so much and forgotten God, same today, we've done so much and forgotten God, all of a sudden, they didn't have money. They were dropping out of college. They didn't have enough food. They couldn't buy a new suit. And God will allow, because he loves us, a brokenness to occur to a nation to bring it back to himself. And he may, as you just said, allow far beyond what we see today to remove our comfort zone, focus us on Him and that intimacy that comes and gives us true joy, abundant, and eternal life.
0: Well, beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. I think we're in good hands, Tom. I think God is now working in this generation too, which is, brings me tremendous relief. I'm sure it does to you too, since you have grandkids that age.
1: Oh, listen, I know young people, 19 to 23, that do TikTok every day. And they have uh, one minute to give a complete, they get it from their devotions, a little gospel message and an invitation. One 19-year-old's got 1.3 million followers. He's had 300 million views. And I could just go on and on and on. These young kids are like Billy Graham kneeling on the golf course in Florida when he said, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, say anything you want me to say, do anything you want me to do. Uh and they do it. And it's it's kinda like the scripture in Psalm eighty five six, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And that's what I'm seeing happening. And it it's just overwhelming because young people the, the secular generation is Gen Z, but the ones who are Christians, framing Christians, are unbelievable. So my prayer is, Oh Lord, uh Habakkuk three two, revive your work in the midst of the years, and in the midst of the years make it known in wrath, which we deserve, remember mercy.
0: We just need endless hours. I feel like uh, the kids at Asbury, I don't want to leave the chapel, but we have to leave the discussion, Tom. Uh, Dr. Tom Phillips, again, has been our guest. He is a senior advisor for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, all those wonderful uh, crusades that you may have watched, many of you, like I did when I was a kid and into my adulthood, and just broke my heart when Dr. Graham Uh, How could he dare get old and die? It was just like a—but, of course, God's work is not about a man, and we all know that. So Dr. Tom Phillips is in the middle of all of that, organizing those revivals all those many years, and his uh, latest book is Ignite Your Passion for Jesus, Ignite Your Passion for Jesus, where he lays out preparing your heart and preparing the way for revival to take place in your life and in the place where you live. Uh, And also that he is recommending this book, America's Great Revivals, published by Bethany House, which is a great resource on the history of the revival movement in this country, America's Great Revivals. Uh, Tom Phillips, it's always uh, such a pleasure, and I hope this is the beginning of many other discussions. This has been Sadie Rios, 24-7.
1: Sandy Rios 24-7 is growing, and we want to help you grow, too. If your business or nonprofit is interested in sponsoring Sandy Rios 24-7, you can email us at twenty 247 at gmail.com. That's infowagemedia247 at gmail.com.
2: This is Sandy
0: Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. Sandy Rios back with you on Sandy Rios 24-7. I I don't know. I just love that. I could hear more and more of that. I love that history. You know, America does have a unique history. There is no other country on earth that can tell in its story, story after story, after incident, after miraculous intervention of the Almighty God. We have that story. And I think, remember that we started this discussion with Tom Phillips uh, because of what was happening in Asbury. And right now in the theaters, there's a movie out called The Jesus Revolution, which is about a revival that God did during the hippie era of the 60s and 70s. It's a remarkable movie, but the this thing is always the same. God's powerful move that nobody causes. Uh, it's just that God designs it. And that's what we long for, I think. So uh, I hope that you enjoyed that discussion. And in a second, I, you're going to have another treat, so just hold on. Don't go away. I want to say again, thank you for all of you who've joined us in sponsoring an ultrasound through Preborn. We've saved at least three hundred babies' lives since we started the show uh, about you know in January. So thank you for your generosity. I have a little bit of a different ask uh, right now. Uh, Preborn, of course, if you want to sponsor an ultrasound or provide one for a mom who's trying to make a decision, it's $28. And you can go to preborn.com Sandy and make that donation, preborn.com Sandy. But I'm going to do a little bit of a different ask. Some of you are better equipped to give. God has really blessed you. And if you have that kind of means, would you consider a leadership gift of donating a complete ultrasound machine? You know, they're not cheap. Uh, These life-saving machines cost actually $15,000, and that's more than most sinners can possibly afford. Your tax-deductible donation will save countless lives for years to come. Get involved today. Remember, just go to preborn.com slash sandy, preborn.com slash sandy. If you're one of the few out there who actually have the resources to make that happen, or if you would like to just uh, pay for one ultrasound or any, any multiple of one. It's $28 per ultrasound, and that's com slash Sandy. All right, well, many people kind of dispute what the Civil War was about. Um, and I've asked Bruce to join me now because I have a special task for him today, by the way. Hi, sweetheart.
2: Hello. <laughs>
0: Can you put on your Abraham Lincoln accent?
2: I heard that he had kind of a high voice, believe it or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> you could probably do it. You would take voices really well.
2: Doesn't right. seem to fit him, but that's what I've heard.
0: Well, here, he's, he's, I, he, there's a real strong competition between Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and mine, mine for pre- favorite presidents. But Abraham Lincoln, I think, will always be my, since my dad bought me a classic comic book, The Story of Abraham Lincoln, when I was a little girl, I fell in love with him. I did.
2: I had that same comic, believe did it or not. Did you really? Yes, had, I see, did. we've never talked about that. Wasn't <laughs> that funny? I, lo- I loved it.
0: Yeah. That's how we, uh, in many ways, how we learned our history. Uh, but um, just one point about him, because there's so many we could make. There's a dispute over why the Civil War was fought. In the current textbooks, they'll tell you it was commerce, big business. Uh, and they say it was not to abolish slavery. Well, all right. So let's say, well, how would we know what's true? I'd say we know what's true by going back and reading what the people that were there at that time thought about what the war was about, and maybe there's no one better uh, to describe what that war was all about than the president at the time, the president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. And in his second inaugural address, which was delivered on March the 4th of 1865, by the way, this is, if you go to the was- the monument, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., Bruce and I have spent countless, countless hours there uh, in that wall is this address. And so I've asked Bruce to read it. This was just what something like six, five weeks before he was shot. So this address is not one of triumph. It's a weary address, a thoughtful address, but I want you to hear it. And I've asked Bruce to read it. The second inaugural address of President Abraham Lincoln in 1865.
2: On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it. All sought to avert it. While the inaugural address was being delivered from this place, devoted altogether to saving the Union without war, insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war, seeking to dissolve the Union and divide effects by negotiation. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest all knew that this interest was, somehow, the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union, even by war, while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude, or the duration which it has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of this conflict might cease with, or even before, the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph, and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible, and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of another men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been fully answered. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war. As the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to Him? Fondly we do hope, fervently we do pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace amongst ourselves and with all nations.
0: Well, it just takes us back in time, Bruce, because I think um, that was Abraham Lincoln, March the 4th of 1865. And it's interesting, you know, we would never hear a president quoting that much scripture now. But he's talking to a population who went into the war after this great awakening that Dr. Phillips described, whose soldiers studied the word, not all of them, I'm sure, but many of them studied the word by the lamp of the fires in their camps at night, Uh, who had read um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and understood the spiritual. He was talking in a language they understood. And um, he's stating quite clearly that he thinks uh, the war might have come because of the treatment not only of the South toward black slaves. He didn't single out the South. Did you notice that? He didn't praise the North as though they were innocent, uh, but that God was bringing judgment on both, and the issue was slavery and the treatment of black uh, Americans. So um, I just think it bears repeating that since uh, Dr. Phillips brought that up in the conversation. Isn't that something?
2: And I think that is something to be remembered is that neither side had clean hands in this war. We both had things that I'm sure displeased God that we were fighting for. Um, And um, it's always interesting to me to think, how does God view a war when both sides are praying to him? And you can imagine the population of the soldiers was probably pretty homogenous. You know, the, the standard soldier in the south is pretty much like a guy in the North except for their view on slavery. And it's just, you know, sometimes wars are fought for good reasons, and other times there is no good reason for a war. Now, I happen to believe in this war there was an incredibly good reason, and that was whether or not slavery should continue. Mm -hmm. But you always wonder how God views soldiers on each side who pray to him regardless of their their leaning on an issue.
0: Well, I think I think the answer to that however vague this might seem is that our God is a God of justice. So regardless of the issue and regardless of the difference of opinions, God is busy executing justice both both privately among people but also in nations. And so he's he's just he's working toward history. You know, he's got this big grand plan and he's uh, we can't even possibly comprehend what he has in mind. You think of it, Robert E. Lee, who was this strong, strong, committed Christian, who was the the general of the of the Southern Army. He almost, you know, I don't think he was pro slaveryness. Well, maybe he was, uh, but he was a strong Christian, and so he's the the leader of their army. This, you know, Christians can be wrong about things, and so we're not always right about every issue. And I think God was just teaching. I think it's just part of God's instruction. To, to all the people during that period of time. But um, that's, that's uh, what happened. I think it's a great story. All right, well, listen, I hope you enjoyed that. And let me remind you that Dr. Phillips uh, has recommended America's Great Revivals, uh, published by Bethany House, if you're interested in more about those Great Awakenings. And uh, let me also add that if you would like to keep in touch with us, you know that you can do that by calling us at 662. 662- 821-2040 that's 662-821-2040 or go you know write us at sandy at afr.net or you can find us on facebook or twitter or instagram or getter or truth social or youtube or rumble uh, and uh, you can find us on all the podcast platforms and so by now i should just say that and let all of you just join me as i'm saying that we can all say it together facebook twitter anyway uh, that's the way it goes. But listen, we thank you so much for listening, and sweetheart, thank you for that beautiful rendition of um, uh, D- President Abraham Lincoln's sec- second inaugural. Thank you for that. It
2: is my honor. What a, what a speech he gave.
0: Yeah, breathtaking. And when you see it in the memorial at night with the light on his statue... You know, it's you and I both just just mesmerizing. All right. Well, there's your marching orders. You need to come to the Capitol and and go and and have that experience. Thanks for listening. This has been Sandy Rios 24-7.